episode of the tech.eu podcast with myself, Neil Murray, and Roxanne Vaza. Hi, Roxanne. Hi, Neil. So this week, we'll cover some big news in European fintech as both GoCardless and Currency Fair announced big funding. Germany's Big Point Games has gotten acquired by China's Yuzu, so we'll take a look at that. We'll discuss one great UK startup called What Three Words, and Neil catches up with Sarah Tierney of We Are Colony. And finally, we'll wrap up the podcast with a discussion on the launch of Sky VR Studio and what it means for VR. So let's get started with fintech. I feel like we never do a podcast without fintech anymore. So <laughs> bloody love fintech on this show. This week was a big week for two of Europe's up and coming fintech companies, Go Cardless and Currency Fair. For anyone who doesn't know Go Cardless, it's a UK-based startup that specializes in online direct debit, founded in 2011. There also aren't a lot of UK startups that are YC alumni, but this is one of them. So the company just announced a $13 million round of funding with Notion Capital and previous investors, Excel, Balderton, and Passion Capital. Product is already available in France, UK, and Germany. And now Go Cardless also offers their service in the Netherlands, Spain, and Sweden. So the company has a apparently processed over 1 billion pounds in payment, which is huge, and has some pretty top tier customers, including the Financial Times. Yeah, well, I'm going to say something controversial. I I don't actually love fintech. I think there's a lot of verticals that are more interesting, except we can't ignore it, as we said before on this show. You know, fintech is Europe's most dominant vertical right now. So it isn't because we have preference for it. It's because it's simply so dominant in Europe right now. But actually saying that, the companies that we're talking about here are actually two of the more interesting fintech companies. One thing to note is Mondo, who everyone has been talking about recently, have done a great job of their crowdfunding campaign, have had a lot of attention. Actually, one of the founder of Mondo was actually a co-founder of GoCardless as well. So there's a little bit of a connection there. While Mondo has kind of been fairly loud about what they've been up to, GoCardless are actually a little further down the line and have been going about things a bit more quietly, but nonetheless have been progressing quite well and have raised, I think it's $25 million in total now. So, you know, that's, that's a fair amount. And as you say, they're starting to expand into other countries as well. So yeah, things are looking pretty promising for them. And so yeah, coming back to GoCardless, obviously, they're not the only fintech startup to raise money this week. We also have Dublin-based Currency Fair that announced an 8 million euro round. So I'm actually really happy we're talking about Currency Fair because I feel like we haven't talked about Ireland on the show for a while. So uh, this round was actually led by UK-based Octopus Ventures. They had another uh, London-based firm, which is Proxy VC, and also a Dublin-based fund, Frontline Ventures. So I didn't know any Irish VC funds before hearing about this round, so I actually took a minute to check out their portfolio. They've invested in quite a few other Irish startups, including AQ Metrics, Reap Rewards, and PageFair. So that's just to name a few of them. But back to Currency Fair, the startup specializes in P2P money exchange international transfers, the company raised a 10 million euro round with Octopus last April and announced plans to enter the US market and add another 50 employees to the team. 
yeah, I mean, again, it's another company that's kind of just going quietly about their business. It demonstrates, again, this company is an Irish fintech company who is seeing a lot of traction. So again, this is a trend which is across the whole of Europe, not just in London or the UK. What's also interesting is that they added a key hire at the same time. They hired the CMO, who was at Unibet, the, the gambling company, to come and join them. So quite a kind of stellar hire, if you like, or the fact they're able to attract people at exec level from kind of more established big companies in the gambling space in this case, but still a very relevant sector for what they're going in. I think it speaks a lot to the kind of direction that they're taking. Definitely. So now we'll take a look at China and what seems to be a bit of a European acquisition culture that they've been developing. We announced on a previous episode that Opera Software was acquired by a Chinese firm. And now the same is happening in Germany with a games publishing company called Big Point. So China's Yuzu Interactive is a publicly listed Chinese games publisher that recently acquired Hamburg-based Big Point for $80 million. Big Point was founded in 2002 and specializes in free-to-play mobile games. The acquisition price may seem a bit low. That actually kind of really jumped out at me when I read this, first saw the news. And some are saying that this is because of Big Point's struggle with the transition to mobile. This is in contrast, obviously, with really big acquisitions in the space like Supercell or King. Big Point has offices around the world in Germany, France, Malta, Turkey, the US, and Korea. And after opening the office in Korea, they inked a deal in China with Tencent that really helped the company take their games to Asian audiences. So I guess some of the titles that some of the listeners may have heard about can include Sea Fight, Farmarama, and Shards of War. Yeah, I mean, and this this kind of acquisition culture that, that's developing, or at least um, China looking at Europe quite a lot, isn't just in acquisitions as well. I mean, using the, the Nordics as an example, I recently looked at the amount of funding that was coming from the East and from Asia, and the increase was massive. I mean, compared to 2014, it was like two Asian investors backed a Nordic company in, in 2014. In 2015, 16 did. And what's really interesting, it was every single quarter there was an increase. It was like one, then three, then five, then seven. And I'm sure there's been kind of a few in 2016 as well. So it, you can literally see this interest kind of gathering pace quarter upon quarter. So it's uh, we talk about kind of is the money coming in from America, but it looks like money is coming in from Asia as well. And let's not forget, it's, it's where there is a lot of money. You know, China is a place where there's a lot of investment available. So I think there's an opportunity here for European companies to actually deliberately target Asian investors, both for money and for Chinese firms or Asian firms for acquisitions as well, because the interest is certainly growing. So I think there's a big opportunity for European firms to actually start looking there proactively. Yeah, I think definitely this is a place that Europe should keep on its radar, especially as startups look for acquirers as they go forward. So now we'll take a look at a UK startup that Neil describes, none other than very cool. So that's for all our listeners that are wondering why we picked a company called What Three Words. The company has developed a navigation system that seeks to simplify the longitude-latitude system. Essentially, they have divided up the world into 57 trillion three-meter squares, and they use three different words to identify each particular square. So one will be called something like table, lamp, chair. I find this really hilarious, actually. So instead of identifying where I am by a set of numbers, I can now just use three random words. 
this unique string of words is even easier to use than a postcode, obviously very easy to use for the non-technical. And the app is free to use for individuals, but the company licensed their product to businesses and NGOs. And it seems like it's already a hit with delivery companies, navigation apps, and municipal governments. Yeah, I mean, the reason why I like it is I think it's just so unique. I mean, why, why did you think, oh, yeah, I know what we're going to do. We're going to come up with free words for every place on earth to make it easier for people to kind of identify where they are. You know, I think the idea itself is just so unique and so original. And I kind of like that it's so ambitious. I mean, you know, you can't get any more ambitious than kind of renaming everywhere on earth. So for me, that's why I think it's really, really cool. Just to give you an example, I was going to give the free words and then I was like, I don't really want to give out my exact address. So I, I will give you an example of where I live by the nearest train station. I'm prepared to go that far to reveal my address. But my where I live is builds clown liked. So it's like really random words as well. But yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's, it's so interesting because it's so ambitious. And I don't think there's anyone else really doing this right now. And I think it also has a lot of potential to be kind of helpful or like a good business as well. So there's not only, as you say, like for organizations where bad addresses actually cost businesses money, but also for individuals as well who may get lost. I mean, it's a lot easier. You know, I, I haven't got a clue what kind of coordinates are or I, I wouldn't know how to use them, but I do know how to say free words. So, you know, I just think it's very, very useful at the same time. I mean, and even using kind of where I actually live, even in a sat-nav, if you put my postcode into a sat-nav, you're like delivered down the road from my actual house, which is a problem when, you know, delivery finally gets to me. Um, so I would just be able to give them these free words and they would be able to kind of get within pretty much to my door. So I think it's it's a kind of a huge opportunity as well and just a very unique way of going about it. Yeah, I kind of, uh, I had a little bit of a laugh when you said, I don't think anybody else is working on this right now. I have never heard about something like this before. So I think it's really, really a unique project. So Neil, you had a chance to catch up with Sarah Tierney, the founder of We Are Colony, but she's done actually a lot more than just found a company. I love that we have to say just found a company for her profile. <laughs> yeah, she certainly has. I got the opportunity to speak with her and kind of when I was just, uh, you know, looking at who she was and kind of what she'd done in the past, I actually found out she's a BAFTA winner and Oscar nominee. So I think this is the first time we've had an Oscar nominee on the podcast. So it was a very interesting chat. So yeah, we talked a bit more about her past and basically how she founded We Are Colony. This week, we're joined by Sarah Tierney, who's from We Are Colony. Now, Sarah has a bit of an interesting background. She's actually a BAFTA winner and an Oscar nominee. So first of all, Sarah, thanks for joining us. And uh, I would just like to know, how does someone with that background end up as an entrepreneur? And tell us a bit more about what you're doing. Brilliant. Well, thanks, Neil. So, well, actually, I started out as an entrepreneur very early. I founded my first company when I was 23, and that was a company called Clarity Productions, which was a broadcast production company. So we made television and independent film for a range of international broadcasters. And I was very fortunate, really. I um, I loved it. We made some really high quality work. It was everything from sort of news to broadcast docs to feature documentary. And yes, and we and we were lucky enough to pick up some awards along the way. Oh, okay. So those awards are actually part of what you were doing before. Yes. Well, I, I, uh, the Oscar nomination came really early in my career. It was one of the first things I produced, which is one of those, you know, kind of it's all downhill from yeah. here. Um, and that was a short film that, that I made in 2003. So very, very early and very fortunate. 
so the Oscar nomination had come very early, and then and then the uh, the two BAFTAs came from work we did for BBC and for Channel Four. Okay, so I imagine there's actually quite a lot of transferable skills kind of between the two anyway, in terms of kind of filmmaking, being an entrepreneur, being in tech that you can kind of draw on. And I guess from from your experience at least, there's not too much of a difference between the fields. Yes, I mean, I think they they absolutely have their unique challenges. But uh, yes, I mean, I think being an entrepreneur to great extent is about problem solving. Um, and absolutely, that's, you know, what kind of pr- film production is is like as well. But the journey really was that I ran Clarity from 2004 to early 2010. And then I moved into digital. My view was that the television and film industries were really uh, not sort of responding fast enough to the massive change in in how audiences engage with with content, and much like the music industry before it, you know we've seen the sort of traditional structures of film and TV just kind of collapse and be rebuilt. And I wanted to be in that conversation rather than on the the other side, sort of protecting the old models. So in 2010, I, I went to a digital startup called Twig, which was building a global video on demand platform for learning content, and that was my move into tech. Cool. And luckily, it wasn't all downhill. Um, not <laughs> only did you do that, but you're also now the founder of We Are Colony. And, so, and you, you won the seed camp competition a couple of years ago. You've also raised some, some money, I believe 1.4 million in total uh, in pounds. And Andy Murray is actually one of your backers through uh, Cedars as well. So now this is your, your new journey with We Are Colony. Yes, indeed. So we founded the business in 2013. We Are Colony is a global film streaming platform connecting content owners to passionate fans. So what that means is we really work across the film value chain. So we work with filmmakers, production companies, distributors, sales agents, and hopefully soon the studios to help them monetize their film and underexploited extra content direct to a global audience. So we are very much a tech business. So all the tech is built in-house by my brilliant team. And we're solving all kinds of problems. So kind of global reach, engagement with particularly young audiences, uh, the monetization of underexploited content, more effective marketing. There's all kinds of problems to solve in the in the film sector. And we're really excited to be in that mix. And and yes, as you mentioned, we've we've raised one point four million pounds to date. We're actually raising again at the moment. So we're raising five hundred plus as a final seed round before Series A venture next year. And we're doing a bit of that through Cedars, so that campaign is ongoing. And and as you mentioned, we're very fortunate to have brought in some really exciting new backers, including Andy. That's great. I mean, really exciting in terms of what you're doing now. I mean, in terms of the market opportunity, I mean, obviously we have Netflix and you have more independent kind of or services that are focusing more on independent films as well. And that's kind of the area that you're in. I mean, especially those kind of extras. But how big is the market for these kind of extra bits of film or kind of more independent productions than the more mainstream films than you would get on Netflix, for example? Sure. So, I mean, film is a is a significant market. It's on track to be worth 105 billion by 2017. And film streaming platforms like We Are Colony are the fastest growing vertical within that. So estimated to be worth 50 billion by 2020. So, you know, close to half the market share. And this is a very, you know, a young market. And for us, you know, we are going after a, a mainstream audience, but what we're creating is a, is a product differentiation through the extras. So it's really all about added value experience. So the product is more than just the film, and that's adding to customer enjoyment and really building a, a quite unique global community of passionate fans. Our view is that, you know, there are some very large businesses in this space, you know, like Netflix and like, like iTunes. But, you know, there is also enormous space for curated, differentiated product. 
you know, I talk about this quite a lot, but the film industry used to be one of total scarcity. So there were very restricted windows in which we could see film, you know, the cinema, then a long wait, and then home entertainment, then a long wait, and then television. And now you can see nearly anything you want at any time on any device, legally or illegally. And actually, that total abundance has created an opposite problem. There is too much content. And I think what audiences are now looking for is curated, quality, trusted homes that they can feel a part of. Yeah. And what what about kind of exclusive content? Obviously, we've seen Netflix kind of make their own films or TV documentaries, uh, series even. Um, Is that also something that you would be looking at? So we have put some cash into production previously on a couple of uh, smaller projects, and we've been really excited to do that. And we did that based on the quality of the team and also the talent. I think that our focus is on the extra content. You know, we take that exclusively wherever we can. And that's our proposition to the customer is you can see the film on iTunes, but we're the only place you can get behind the scenes and, and get access to a whole host of real fan favorite content. So things like deleted scenes, interviews with cast and crew, documentaries, even the script, still storyboards, you know, material that you just simply wouldn't get access to anywhere else. Excellent. Well, good luck with the rest of the crowd equity campaign. And we'll definitely uh, keep an eye out on you. So thanks for joining us today, Sarah. Brilliant. Thanks, Neil. Great. Well, lovely to have Sarah on the show. So um, finally, we have a reason to believe that virtual reality is becoming mainstream and could end up in your living room shortly if it hasn't already. So Sky, a European pay TV broadcaster with over 21 million subscribers, has launched the Sky VR Studio. This is a production unit uh, dedicated to creating immersive video content for VR devices and platforms. Apparently, first they will tackle sports, then news and entertainment to follow. The company plans to roll out on third-party platforms uh, like Facebook and YouTube, and then they'll let viewers use headsets like Oculus and Samsung's Gear VR to consume that content. Eventually, though, I think the company wants to have their own app and platform to host and stream immersive video itself. This actually helps shed light on why Sky invested in a VR startup called Jaunt. So I think people had a lot of questions with that. Now it's become very clear. And they're not the only broadcaster to go after the VR space. So Fox Sports recently announced it would be working with Next VR for the NCAA Big East basketball tournament. So I guess what I'm really trying to understand is the future of this. Like, are we all going to be sitting in our houses wearing big headsets and watching VR shows? Neil? I think so. I mean, it seems pretty crazy, but I I really believe that it's a lot closer than we think. So I think that VR has kind of reached a threshold or a point now where it's kind of it's well on the path to becoming mainstream. It's it's kind of crossed over that hump in the road, if you like, and it's gone from kind of a few hobbyists to actually, you know, Sky TV investing in it and and even Fox News going after it. I mean, that is a sign that. This is definitely expected to go mainstream. I think it will happen sooner than we think as well. I mean, if I could afford it, I would buy a a gear or an Oculus probably now. You know, like I I wouldn't hesitate to to do it at this point. So to think that in three years, everyone else could be doing it, I I don't think is that big of a jump, to be honest. What's interesting is like my son has like played with, with VR and stuff. And like his reaction is like, it's completely normal. I mean, he's not shocked by it, blown away by it, anything. Like, he's just like, oh, this is fun. So, like, <laughs> I also thought that was really interesting. It's like, to us, maybe, who you know, we, we think, whoa, okay, this is, this is so weird. But to, like, a child or someone who hasn't been around computer games 
or able to do this type of thing before, it's not that weird. So for me, I, f- I definitely think that people will catch on to it and use it uh, and it will become the norm. I mean, for me, we, we've been living in a virtual reality anyway. I mean, as soon as this, I think this, the jump to the smartphone was bigger than a jump to wearing a VR headset, because when you're on your smartphone, you know, you could be in the supermarket and you're laughing, you know, laughing out loud because your mate sent you a funny message. And, you know, you, you're operating in two realities at one time. You're standing there in the supermarket doing your shopping, but you are also in this virtual reality of being engaged in your smartphone and, you know, laughing at your mate's joke. So for me, I think the jump from to a smartphone is much bigger than just putting on a headset and operating and watching a, a VR show, watch, playing a VR game. So, yeah, I, I don't see why it won't be mainstream. I still find it really weird that we'd all be sitting there wearing a massive <laughs> Oculus. <laughs> but I think you're right. I think you have a very good point that actually maybe the, the jump to the smartphone was a bigger jump. And probably, obviously, headsets will change uh, over the next few years. So definitely, I think listeners should consider themselves warned that it's arriving in their living rooms and probably there to stay. Yeah, I mean, I also agree with the headsets will change. Like, I think that, you know, when mobile phones first came out, they were giant. They were, you know, they were like huge bricks. And I think we'll see the same kind of development as as we will with VR headsets. You know, they may look kind of clunky and a bit crazy and a bit weird right now. But who's to say? I know Google Glass obviously had a setback, but who's to say that in the future it won't just be like a pair of glasses that you put on or something a lot kind of easier? Because, you know, we went from a huge brick, well, to a huge iPhone now. But I, I think the same development will happen there as well. But that's it for this week. You can obviously subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Acast. Please leave us your feedback on the show in the comments section or reach out to us on Twitter at Neil SW Murray or at Roxanne Vaza at tech underscore EU. And of course, the website is tech.eu. But that's it. We'll be back next week. Thanks, Roxanne. Thanks, Neil.